Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Chris Flannery. Today's guest is Taylor Twelman. He is the lead soccer analyst at ESPN. If you are a soccer uh, diehard, you know he was one of the uh, great goal scorers in MLS as well. But you have basically seen Taylor calling World Cups, national team games for uh, for the U.S. You've seen him calling international soccer tournaments. He's He is their premier voice, premier analyst when it comes to that sport. And we had a really, really fun conversation about, uh, you know, just Taylor being honest about how frustrating it is not to be calling these games because Fox has the package, how he got into broadcasting after not being a particular media darling as a player, where he wants to go with his career beyond soccer. And then the last 12 minutes or so, we get into the United States women, the the big win over Thailand, the celebrations that have, uh, you know, launched 15,000 think pieces. And it's, it's a pretty good back and forth, I think. Uh, we disagree um, on some of this stuff, at least in terms of of how it was covered. And so I think you'll enjoy that. So it is one guest on this podcast. That doesn't always happen. And it is Taylor Twelman. Uh, not too long a podcast, but uh, but Taylor was great. And I've been wanting to do this for a while. And it was good of him to come on. So Taylor Twelman of ESPN, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Taylor Twelman is the lead soccer analyst at ESPN. He joined that company in November 2011 following a very pro- successful professional soccer career where he was one of the best goal scorers in MLS. He has called World Cups for ESPN, national team matches, uh, pretty much everything that one can do regarding soccer. Taylor has done at ESPN, but he has also gone beyond soccer, and that is something that we will talk about in this conversation. Taylor, I think we've been talking about doing this for like, it feels like 15 years. Yes. <laughs> well, well, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm glad you could fit me into the schedule, Richard. Yeah, Taylor, you are... One of the biggest stars in the business, and so I appreciate you you coming off your mountain to do this yeah, small podcast. exactly. Coming off my huge mount after my Blues just won the Stanley Cup. Listen, this, nice. this, this is a difficult time to do a podcast for me. You know that. I, I do know that. And, by, and uh, be, being that Rebecca Lowe and Alexi Lalas canceled, I, I, you're my third choice, and that's, that's fantastic <laughs> on my end. All right, Taylor, listen, we, we will talk about the Blues, and it's exciting, but the I want to start, of course, with the biggest story in soccer right now, and that's the Women's World Cup in France. Yep. And be, be honest with people uh, who are listening. Um, you're one of the premier voices of this sport in the United States, yet you cannot call these matches because uh, another network has them in Fox. So how frustrating is it to, um, even though you'll be talking on the air in different forums, how frustrating is it not to call these games, or at least not to be part oh, of the live God. coverage? It, there's a pit in your stomach every single time you see it, Rich. Uh, it's it's a difficult one to explain to people. And listen, it's not as if I didn't know that situation when I re-signed with ESPN and didn't move over to Fox. I understood that situation. But um, these are the games, you know. Uh, These are your games, whether it's male or female. This is your country. This is your federation. This is who you represented when you played. So, you know, there's a pit in your stomach. Now, in saying that, I think times have changed, as you all know more than anyone, with social media and, you know, the ESPN platform. You still have a say, but it's not during the 90 minutes, right? It's not during the game call. It's not, you know, necessarily at halftime. It's pregame or it's postgame or it's on social media or it's on our other, 
you know, different shows like Sports Center or Scott Van Pelt or whatever that may be. Uh, but it's not easy. Um, but Richard, to be honest with you, I've gotten over it and, and used the platform to the best of the ability. And that's also why I stayed at ESPN because that platform still is a, uh, a key component of growing the sport. So Taylor, how does it work? Do you, will you have a daily meeting with someone or someone's everyday producers, et cetera, story editors, where you know that obviously during the time the game is on eyeballs will be on Fox, but then you have opportunities before and after those games in many different mediums and formats. So how does it, you know, like how will this month work for you in terms of when you'll be on and how you guys approach it? Yeah, this month, basically there's emails that go out at the start of a tournament. So, for instance, the 2018 Men's World Cup, right, uh, Scott, Scott Van Pelt and I got together with Stanford Steve and his group um, and all those guys and said, this is what we're looking at to do for the show. What do you think? Now, initially, for the listeners, Richard, it was difficult because we initially thought we were going to have about 40 to 50% more highlights and we didn't, so we had to get creative, and that's why we came up with Draw the World Cup and whatnot. For the Women's World Cup, I'm literally on an email for the entire month. Everyone has my contact info, so whether it's Golik and Wingo and the radio side of things to Sports Center in the morning, um, whatever it may be, Scott Van Pelt at night, Sports Center at night, whatever it may be, that's what it is. But primarily for the Women's World Cup, um, those highlights are shown and those conversations are, but my sole purpose is the United States and, and those games. They do not need me. For instance, you and I are uh, having this conversation after the Australia Brazil women's world cup game. I don't, I'm not needed for that analysis. We have Kate Margraf. We have Julie Foudy. Um, they, they primarily want me on the women's side of things uh, just for the United States team. If that makes any God. sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense, actually. And actually, uh, Kate and Julie are excellent. So it's actually a really good group at ESPN. What? Um, how do you watch these games, Taylor? Will you? Uh, are you watching that? Do you do you want to watch them at ESPN? So you're on site. Can you watch them at whatever wherever home base is for you? And they'll contact you. The men's you know, World Cup. F- I watch it, Richard. Um, the men's World Cup. I watch them at ESPN. And not to sit here on my soapbox, but the biggest reason why I want to do that is I think I can educate many of those that are watching these games that don't understand the sport. Hmm. And so I thought last year was extremely successful for us at ESPN because I was literally there for 30-some-odd days, and we'd watch games with random people. Like Lewis Riddick, for example, didn't understand the sport tactically, now all of a sudden he's texting me during the UEFA Nations League final with Portugal versus the Netherlands. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's got an in, interest. So that's part of what I need to do at ESPN. That's part of what I need to do in general. Um, but now for the women's side of things, because of me covering whether it's men's friendlies, U, UEFA Nations League, MLS games, uh, the International Champions Cup, the ICC and whatnot, I can watch the women's game wherever I am, and then the email text messages go in, and then I can do my hits, you know, wherever I may be at that moment. Tell so this gets into obviously management a little bit, so I realize you got to be diplomatic here. But an interesting observation for me is that when John Skipper left ESPN, um, there probably was a thought that that soccer may recede mm-hmm. at that place because he was such a big soccer fan. By the way, more, much more of a soccer fan than a football fan. Um, and 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 really, obviously, wanted to get as many rights as possible. Was probably really bummed that you guys lost the World Cup rights to Fox. 
Interestingly enough, though, Taylor, if you look at the ESPN Plus acquisitions of global yes. soccer around the world, ESPN has been on like a spending spree in terms of getting all this stuff, you know, whether it's the Dutch League, uh, whether it's the Japan League, etc. So m- my sense is that th- your initial, th- not your initial thought, but the initial thought that soccer may recede at ESPN, I actually think is the reverse. I feel like, at least in terms of the streaming product, you guys have gone much more in. How do you, how do you see it from your vantage point? I think initially, Richard, uh, throughout the entire company and even the sport in general in the United States, the thought was, well, John Skipper is leaving, stepping down, or moving away. Yes, that was the initial thought. However, Jimmy Pitaro and that, and that group has pleasantly surprised me. And I think it's actually, he's actually surprised a ton of people outside the company that, no, 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 nothing changes. There's different avenues. There's, there, I mean, ESPN Plus, soccer's the number one driver of that with UFCs, right? So I, I don't think it's that way. I think initially you're correct, I think, and I'll raise my hand. I, I know I was one of those people as well, but Jimmy Pitaro, the conversations I've had with him, the conversations he's had with the United States Soccer Federation, with Major League Soccer, uh, but more so what you said, right? You, you go out and you get Syria. There's conversation, you know, we go out and get Copa America. You're getting a lot of big-time soccer entities, and ESPN Plus is a destination to that. And, Richard, you've known me for a long time. I, I won't say it if I don't believe it. I do believe Jimmy Pitaro is going to be better for soccer because I think he's going to take the company to a new level of where we need to go. Now, the bigger question is, and always will be, at what point are we on SportsCenter every 60, 60 minutes? You know, at what right. point is soccer part of that conversation? That is soccer's number one, I think, goal is to get in that conversation but when they do all the business metrics, whether this is at ESPN, Fox, NBC, or anywhere else, soccer is young. It's one of the younger sports in their demographic and their fans, and it's very diverse. So I don't think it's going anywhere. And quite honestly, I think Jimmy Pitaro is going to bring some new ideas that may not have been there with John Skipper. So while it was a concern, I'm not sure it's a concern anymore. I'm really not. Taylor, you, uh, I know you did Philadelphia Union games right after you yeah. left you left playing. How did, uh, how, did it, how did it come about where you went from calling the Philadelphia Union to landing at ESPN? Richard, it's a great question, and I, I don't want to bore the listeners, but I think they'll find this a little interesting. I, I hated television. I hated media when I played. Um, I was known as Bull Durham. I gave every cliche. I just, it's not <laughs> that I hated the media. I just didn't trust myself with the media. Um, I felt like when I was playing, I may give a soundbite or two or say something that was going to get me in trouble. So I was very cliche. I, I just, I wasn't very open. And then it was actually a, a former producer, Tom McNeely, um, at ESPN that I had probably a thousand beers with uh, throughout my time playing, whether it was at Celtics games, Bruins games. Um, he, he was producing the MLS games, and he just always said after interviews I would do for ESPN playing, I think you should try media. And I was like, no, I don't want to. Well, to make a long story short, I actually did no soccer. I went and did a nightly sports talk show, uh, Sports Tonight, uh, here in, M- in Boston. And it was for Comcast Sports New England. Now it's NBC Sports Boston. And it was a guy by the name of Kevin Miller, and he was a St. Louis guy. And he basically, 
I would host a show, Richard. So I have no training, nothing whatsoever. And I would co-host a show with Mike Felger and these other guys. And you talk Bruins, Celtics, Patriots, um, and, and Red Sox. And then there was no soccer in there. So I was thrown into the deep end. I learned the mechanics. And then I, I got interested in it. Then I was like, oh, wait, wait a minute. And then I started to call two or three occasional games. I was like, this is a lot of fun. And thankfully for the Philadelphia Union, they called and said, listen, we don't have a color analyst. And, and Richard, it's a gift for me for to learn how to prepare, how to do a game. My first year calling games was with J.P. Della Camera. And so J.P. is the play-by-play guy. He's doing the Women's World Cup. Uh, he's done soccer for over 20 years, but that was my first year. So I got a hardcore internship on how to prepare, how to do things. Um, and then I just would send tapes out and ask. And, and I, I actually enjoy negative criticism. I, I constructive criticism. I don't want to, don't tell me I'm good if I'm not. And so that was really helpful for me. And a big part of that was Tom McNeely at ESPN would watch two or three of those games, send me notes and, and then I was off and running, and I became addicted with it. Taylor, this uh, sort of brings up something interesting to me, and this is sort of the next iteration of your career. You've established yourself as a soccer voice at ESPN. I shouldn't even say ESPN, but you've established yourself as, I think, a premier soccer voice in the United States when it comes to sports media. But you started to do some things outside of soccer, whether it's mm-hmm. appear on Get Up, uh, whether it's to do ESPN radio, you just mentioned before when you were in Boston, you obviously did multiple sports. So I wonder when you think about this, or maybe when you and your representatives think about this, like how do you navigate keeping your place in soccer, but also expanding yourself beyond soccer so you don't just limit yourself to one silo? It's a great question, Richard. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that I probably deal with every month on trying to figure, uh, figure that out and navigate it. I, 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 I just there's there's a huge part of me that has always had this goal to just have soccer in the conversation. And I think a big issue is is that too often because soccer was such this niche sport that you couldn't have this conversation with either NFL or Major League Baseball or ba- or basketball or hockey guys. And so it was always my goal. Now granted I was a four-sport athlete in, in high school. I went to college on a baseball scholarship, so it's in my blood. My grandfather won, you know, grandfather won two World Series with the Yankees. It's not like I had a choice. I know I love all sports, but I want soccer to be in that conversation. Richard, I don't know that answer. I think I deal, you know, there's been a couple opportunities um, where people have asked me to do more stuff, which means maybe get away from soccer, and I just don't think – I go back to what I just said. I don't know if that's the right decision, just to become another talking head as opposed to being a talking head that still is an analyst for soccer and that covers soccer and covers soccer at a high level. That, that's the biggest dilemma for me. I think it's part of my duty as an ex-athlete, ex-soccer player, to give back to the sport. So I don't know, Richard. I don't, you, know, you could call me, you could text me six weeks from now, and we could do this podcast and this conversation, and then I'm going to tell you, you know what, I've changed my mind. I'm going to do different things, you know, but right now you and I are talking and Fox Sports 1 has the U.S. Open on it, and that was always something. Golf is a huge part of my life and my family's life, and that's something, too. I, I don't know the answer. I really don't. I don't. I'm curious on what you think. What do you think is more important? Is it more important to be just another talking head like a Max Kellerman or a Stephen A. Smith, or is it better to be 
an analyst that can do that, but you're still got quote unquote a specialty. All right, first I'm going to forgive you for bringing up the name Kellerman and Smith on this podcast. <laughs> Next, um, so Wikipedia is fantastic because I so I just looked this up. I will answer your question in a second, Taylor. Jim Delsing is your was your is your grandfather was your grandfather? Yes, that's my uh, yep. It's my mom's uh, mom's father. Yep. Okay, so this is this is unbelievable to me. He has two incredible, on top of obviously winning World Series, played in the major leagues for ten years, which is obviously an incredible achievement. He has these two sort of uh, notable things. Yeah. One, he's the pitch runner for Eddie Goodell in yep. on August nineteenth, nineteen fifty one. That's amazing if you're a baseball fan. And the second thing is, he was replaced in center field by Al Kaline, maybe the yeah. greatest Tiger. Amazing. Yeah. So he, Richard, he was so for you know Eddie Goodell was the midget, and just for everyone listening, you can say that because that's how it was promoted. I'm not saying something politically incorrect. I've already run that by. So when you're in Cooperstown, there's actually a picture. Um, someone sent me this picture a long time ago of actually my grandfather shaking Eddie Goodell's hand on first base coming off. The St. Louis wow. Browns ran a promotion around Eddie Goodell. And my grandfather pinch ran, and, and always when he was alive, he used to always go, "Yeah, I played ten years, I won two World Series, blah blah." And the only thing I'm remembered for it is that. And the other one was he was Al Kaline came up for the Tigers. He was traded. The other part of that, which no one can confirm to me, other than Peter Gammons planted the seed in my head when I first came to Boston, was that when Mickey Mantle came up. They were already preparing the Yankees for movement of Mickey Mantle coming up. So the trade of my grandfather from the New York Yankees was in part to get Mickey Mantle up from the big league sooner rather than later. Wow. So, All right. And then is, on top of that, your, your, your dad played in the North American Soccer League, the famous NASL. And I think given the time frame, he must have played against Pele and those great Cosmos teams, right? Yeah. Yep, so I have, I have Pelé's jersey, Canalia's jersey. Um, they lost two straight playoff series to the Cosmos uh, back in the early 70s. Um, and then he had two brothers that also played um, in the NASL and then indoor. And then Jim Delsing, my grandfather that we just talked about, his son played on the PGA Tour for 20 years. So it, Jesus, I, what, a, what an well, athletic what family you come from. Richard, if, if it was Thanksgiving dinner table and I said I'm going to be an accountant, I think my parents might have looked at me and said, are you sure? Well, here's the other thing, Taylor. Based on those athletic genes, shouldn't you be Leo Messi? I mean, what an opportunity you had from these great <laughs> athletes before you. Well, actually, in that case, then I've extremely disappointed everyone. <laughs> I'm kidding. You obviously had a great athletic career. All right, so to answer your question, Taylor, and I'm sure I've probably told you this if we've ever talked offline, I think the the best scenario for someone like you is obviously to maintain your presence in soccer as a top voice, but to do these other opportunities, particularly the ones that interest you, because it shows your bosses, who I think often have to be reminded of this, that you're not just a, a singular sport person. You know, one of the people who I feel like is really, um, you know, if you look around ESPN, there are people who are really, really good at letting ESPN management know that they shouldn't be siloed just to one thing. It's a mm -hmm. different skill set, I realize, but like Holly Rowe is a great example of that. Like yep. whether it's uh, women's basketball, women's softball, college football, uh, college basketball, the WNBA, 
Like, Holly Rowe is somebody who I feel like if ESPN had to just plop on Monday Night Football, they wouldn't even blink because they know that she could handle that assignment if you just plopped her down there. So to me, I think if you like the, you know, if you like the um, the the place that, you know, the, the, the program or medium that it is, obviously like Van Pelt's show is great because so many people watch it or ES, a big high-profile ESPN radio spot or something interesting on ESPN+. Plus. To me, I think you should do all those opportunities, and I also think it, um, I think it makes you a much more. This is just my opinion. I think it makes you an interesting figure to viewers when you can surprise them. Like when you come on and you say something that's kind of interesting. Let's say about the St. Louis Blues. Yeah. Like if I'm yeah. just some average sports viewer, I'm like, holy shit! Like I didn't realize Taylor Twelman knew anything about hockey. Like that's a good to me. That's that's a great thing. Like that's a that kind of revelation. I think is. Is yeah, good. I and also think Richard too. It's when the viewer knows the viewers know you're just you. You're being who you are. You're being true, and it's nothing's right. contrived. I think that's the most important thing. For sure, but again, I do think there's. I think there's also financial value in also being, um, in being, uh, f- uh, having the ability, the versatility to work many different places. Like if I was your agent, I I would you know I think to me like I would try to get you a weekly spot on one of these. Uh, studio shows because I just think that's a that one you can make more money on it but two it's just a really good um sort of vehicle I don't I don't want my agent living in Canada <laughs> Man, well, trust me but given these taxes it's a good point uh you went to uh you went to high school in St. Louis correct yeah so what's yes, your what's your blue so we're taping this literally a couple hours after the blues have won this amazing uh Stanley yeah. Cup final um what what is that when your fandom for this team started you also live in Boston so that's a yeah, tricky so thing, too. This, I'm sure, I'm sure you know the Bruins and stuff. Richard, this was a disaster for me. This was an <laughs> utter disaster. So this year, uh, 2009, well, middle of 2018, was I means I've lived in Boston longer than St. Louis. And so literally, I came here in 2002, the day before the Rams lost to the Patriots, in the Super Bowl, the one where obviously the Rams were extremely favored, but football wasn't in St. Louis. So let me backtrack a little bit. I was born in Minnesota with my dad was playing. Anyway, when I was seven, six or seven, six years old, excuse me, we were back in St. Louis. And then I was there to all the way through high school. So, but I've been in Boston longer. So this Stanley Cup was a disaster, but I just felt like none of these Boston fans are going to really respect me if all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I'm a Bruins fan. Like, none of them would be. If they were relocated to Omaha or to Chicago, they're not going to become Blackhawks fans. They're, Bru- they're Bruins fans. So I just felt like, you know what? I, I've always been a Blues fan. I've been raised a Blues fan. So now I'm going to switch because I lived in Boston longer. So I went with the Blues. And for 49-some-odd years, 51 years, however many years it's been, None of us thought this. None of us thought we've, we've had arguably one of the more disappointing franchises with so many disappointing losses and key moments where we were in control. And then to have this team January 3rd in last place of the NHL to put in a rookie goalie to come up back. All, I, honestly, it's a little surreal for me. Taylor, one, la- one thing on Boston before uh, we move to uh, – the last thing I want to talk to you about is um, – the discussion, the, the the many talking and think pieces on the U.S. celebration, et cetera, goals yeah, against yeah, Thailand. Yeah, yeah. But I but I want to get more about how you think it's been covered, even more than your own opinion, which I've already seen online. Do you think um, is Boston unique in your opinion in terms of 
how sports media exists in a city. Yeah. Because I, I think I've never seen another city that – how do I phrase this? Uh, take sports – media more seriously that and that by the way is both incredibly great and incredibly bad but it's it's no other city i think has the intensity of sports consumption than boston at least in the united states in my opinion it's pretty close you know i i i've always said you know even as a player i enjoy the northeast more so than the west coast just because i i don't mind a little as they say, piss and vinegar to everything. I don't mind that. And when you're in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, there's something to that. But being in Boston, uh, pretty much professional athlete raised, and then in media, living and breathing sports media here, Richard, I, you know, listen, New York is a special place. And so anyone listening is going to say, yeah, New York blows out of the water. I don't, I haven't lived it. You know, my, my grandfather did, and he would probably tell me if he was alive right now, you're out of your mind. New York's its own place. But I, I think you're right, Rich, Richard. I, I really do. When I look at it, I don't know. This is, it is hardcore. It is serious. You're held accountable. Um, but you said it best, too. It's, it's also not completely healthy either. But I'd rather have that than not. And I just think when you play in a city like this, and then all of a sudden you cover sports in a city like this, it's at a different level. And I, quite honestly, I, I'm very grateful for it because I think it's helped shape me into the analyst that I want to be. Uh, the only thing I'd say, Taylor, is I lived and um, I lived and worked in New York for for many years, and I have family who live outside of Boston. I've been to Massachusetts. That's probably the state I've been to. Uh, more than any other except New York. And in my opinion, having worked in one market, I, I Boston is a tougher market, in my opinion, to be an athlete. I think to be a person in the media, I just think it's more intense. It's smaller, slightly smaller. But yeah. The, yeah. I, think it's, I, think I'm, I think it's tougher. And I think if, let's say, I was playing, like if I was in your position, a professional athlete, I think it is a harder, uh, a harder gig in that town um, than New York. Maybe, obviously, if you're Tom Brady, not as hard because you've won so much and you're sort of beloved, but I, it's a it's a tough town uh, for well, sure. Well, it's so right, us... right? You bring up a huge right. point. The size of the city it makes that, which is why it's more of a fishbowl. That, it's actually a really good point. Great. And the other thing, too, is, and you know this if you listen to Boston radio, whether you're, you know, oh, yeah. there's two, two major sports stations, both top of the market, basically. Almost all that talk, Taylor, is Boston talk. They don't go national no. the way you might hear a national uh, story in, like, uh, Jacksonville radio or Nashville radio. Like, there's enough going on in Boston where that essentially is the primary content of Boston radio. They've been like, arguing they over the last four days here in this market since I've been home from Portugal about the fourth starter for the Red Sox. The fourth starter. <laughs> right. Exactly. That, that's a perfect, perfect, uh, perfect example. All right. So let's finish up on this. And again, Taylor, I appreciate your time. I know that you you probably have some kind of star-studded event to go to, so yeah. I, I appreciate oh, yeah. you taking it. Real star-studded over here. I'm going to sit and watch Tiger Tee off in a little bit, so I'm all good, and, buddy. Uh, then again, we're taping this at 2.30. Who the hell has an event <laughs> at 2.30? Um, so um, the the it's kind of amazing how much attention the U.S. win over Thailand uh, drew. The, yep. And you can appreciate this as someone in the business – no, it is amazingly great for Fox. You could oh. not draw up this kind of attention 
uh, in a first round group stage match against the team you're gonna you're gonna roll against a team now, that had no business being there. <laughs> right. So everybody in the world now is gonna watch the second game because they're if nothing else they want to see what the score is and if the Americans celebrate. I understand. I mean, you're you're welcome to obviously give your viewpoint on this, but I'm more interested in just how you how you have observed how much coverage there has been off this singular group stage game. Uh, I'm shocked, but then again, the scoreline was 13-0, Richard. So, in large part, it kind of deserves this kind of media coverage because the scoreline was insane. I mean, 13-0 is almost equivalent to like 103-0 in a college football game. I mean, in all seriousness, 13 goals in a professional World Cup game? You've got to be kidding me. I know, no. but this happens. I tell you, I, 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 again, I, I'm going to let you go. You say, you just, I don't want to interrupt you, but, um, you know, in, in, in hockey. You're supposed in the, to interrupt me. I know. In the Olympics, Taylor, though, hockey and Olympics, both men and women, so yes. we've seen 17 nothing, 14 nothing, 12 nothing kind of blowouts, too. It happens. No, it, it does. And, and it's going to happen more so on the women's side as the game still continues to grow, and Thailand's one of those countries, right? Right. But. But in saying that, we had the most absurd result in the history of men's side with Germany beating Brazil in Brazil in the semifinal, 7-1. And I'm not sure we'll ever see that again. Uh, The scoreline, part of the reason why the media coverage is at such a high level right now, about 13-0, and Richard, this this is fact, not opinion, is because majority of the people don't understand the sport still. So they see a scoreline, they're like, wait a minute, What? The women are that good. How come the men don't score that many goals? How come the men don't do that? The women did 13 against blah, 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 and you hear that kind of conversation. But then the conversation took a turn where, first off, this is an ignorance of the general public. 13, 15, 17, that's not the United States women's problem, the scoreline. It's not, and it can't be. FIFA, the number one tiebreaker in getting out of your group in a World Cup, is goal differential. And right. home, what that means is, because this is your first group game, Thailand still has to play Sweden, and they still have to play Chile. So the United States women, if they had decided to knock the ball around and play just to seven goals, Richard, they don't know what Chile and Sweden are going to do to Thailand. Does that make any sense? Of course, yeah. You, that's right, why so, you have to play it out as far as you can. Absolutely, right? So that's why that conversation, and I've heard a lot of general media news outlets say, should they have scored that many goals? That, that's completely unfair. Un, it's v- extremely unfair to the women. And that's actually, it's just not smart enough to know that question doesn't make any sense because the women don't know. However, the next level conversation about the celebrations and whatnot Listen, and I, and I say this out of so much respect for the women. You have been there. You've been there. You've won it. You're the defending World Cup champion. That's why it threw me off seeing celebrations as if they just won the World Cup on goal 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And, and listen, Richard, a lot of people are going to say to me that are listening, it's the pinnacle of their career. The World Cup is. Beating Thailand is not the pinnacle of their career. Every single girl in that 23-woman roster and Jill Ellis in that front office and all the administrators, the goal, the pinnacle, is to win that damn tournament. And so what threw me off was a team full of veterans 
and full of real aspirations to win because they are they are they they are the favorites. They're defending champions. That's what threw a lot of ex athletes off, like myself. It threw a lot of us off because the celebrations just didn't seem. I, the right thing to do in that moment, and yet a lot of those players, I saw Carly Lloyd, I saw Alex Morgan after the game consoling Thai players, so I'm not, it just took a mind of its own on the, uh, on the entire media coverage, and I just am a little surprised we saw that kind of reaction from a team that is favored to win the World Cup. If not favored, they're one of the top three teams. That's why you're seeing the coverage, but what a gift. Honestly, Richard, the first thing I thought of was, oh, Fox is sitting there going, just drive this bus, keep going. <laughs> now, game two is Father's Day at 11 a.m., but it doesn't matter. They've created, it's created a narrative, how good is this team going to be? And, Richard, I'll just end it here, and then we can continue the conversation for the listeners at home. I still think this United States women's team is going to really struggle in the quarterfinals, if not lose to France because that is a difficult opponent opponent at home. That's going to be difficult, and that's also why I'm sitting there saying, you know what, there's, there's, there's bigger fish to fry here. I'm not sure we need to be celebrating goals, you know, seven, eight, nine, and it's not the number. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, all right, so that's all well said, and I, I, and I appreciate that. And I'm with you. I think the quarterfinal of this World Cup is really the final, that France-U.S. game. I think the winner of that wins the Cup. All right, so here's a couple things I want to say. And let me just say to the people who listen to this podcast, I realize how ridiculous it is for me to say this to a guy who scored 100 goals in the U.S.'s biggest league. Dude, and you can tell me anything. Who cares? No, but 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 but, but I, 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 I concede without a doubt that you have been in this environment. So I'm just a dude looking at it from the outside. So here is just my one counter. It's yeah. not even a counter, but this is where I look at it a little bit differently. So... The thing that's frustrating to me about this sort of finger-wagging, I feel like, when it comes to the celebration, Taylor, is twofold. One, you don't get these think pieces when Alabama beats Ole Miss 62-7 to on a, on a football Sunday in September. And I do think there are times where this happens all the time, particularly in the men's game, and, you know, it's like an arbitrary decision to, in the men's game, well, let's use this one as, okay, they were rubbing the score too big, or in other cases, what a great kick-ass by whoever. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of point one. Point two, and this gets into soccer, and maybe I'm being a little too ridiculous here, but I think because scoring goals is such a hard thing in the sport that I tend to I tend to appreciate the players who celebrate the achievement because Absolutely. it's not basketball. It's not you can't you're not scoring 35 points in a game. Like as great as Megan Rapino is. At the end of the day, she's only going to score 40 goals in her entire international career. So it's I'm not bothered by that because I think I like to see them celebrate. At the same time, anybody who counters like you did to say it's the United States, you're up 10 nothing, you've scored multiple goals in the tournament, do you got to like do a cartwheel? So I like I get that and I think more people are going to side with you, but I as someone who loves soccer, I do appreciate how hard it is to score, and oh, I understand absolutely. why a player gets excited about scoring. It's not, it's not, you know, you can't score. It's not like the NBA. It's you're not scoring thirty points a game. Like you may go months without a goal. So I no, I, that's sort and of I where know I come what you're from. saying about no. It's actually a very good point. The only caveat, I'm the only thing I'm going to say about college football. First off, you and I are both going to laugh at this. 
football players aren't allowed to celebrate in general, so we'll never see that anyways, <laughs> right, in a 62-7. Right. And, and for the listeners at home, I am actually not old school in the sense uh, the bat flits, flips, the celebrations. I think sports needs more of that, more, more character, more, especially baseball of all sports where it's an older sport. My only issue is that is that when people bring the men into the equation, Germany beat Brazil at halftime. They were talking to each other about not. There's a difference between celebrating and then choreograph celebrating. Does I that make you. any yeah, sense? Right? There's a level yeah, totally. of celebration. And if I score my first goal in a World Cup, and it is against Haiti or someone that like that, where we win seven nothing, which mind you, listeners at home, it's never going to happen unless. You know, FIFA decides we're going to have 100 teams in the World Cup. But my point is, you, you can celebrate. Richard, you can put your hand up. You can celebrate with your teammates. The choreographed celebrations as if you just won the World Cup, that is what threw everyone. And I will never name names based on text messages behind the scenes, but there are people over there that are saying it was a little off. And yeah, that's look- why I'm saying, you know what, there's something going on that is interesting. And quite honestly, if they come out and beat Chile 5-0, this narrative is only going to drive because they're beating teams. They've scored 18 goals in the first two games. I just, there was a level of respect there, and I just think it was, it, it crossed the line. But I also am still one, I don't think it crossed the line by that much and move on. I just think it put a bigger target on your back than there was even more so, especially when you see, and you probably saw it, Richard, living in Canada, some of the ex-national team players for Canada oh, calling yeah. them, Unprofessional going all in. That's what I'm talking about. And they, they went. Uh, yeah, I didn't they mean to interrupt. Did they, Richard? Yeah, TSN of Canada, which has the rights to the World Cup, uh, they were they were more critical than any, uh, certainly any American announcer that I saw, um, to the point where some crazies uh, threw death threats on one of the analysts. Yeah. But I do think Taylor that, and this probably gets into more um, cultural stuff, political stuff. I think most foreign commentators, and I include obviously Canadians in that, were really critical of the U.S. and I think saw this as like the yeah. U.S. Uh, uh, showboating against yep. an opponent, obviously, that they, they, they could have won in their sleep. So and I Richard, get, you know what? That's actually that. the basis of why I had a tough time with it. And I'm not saying this because the women are exponentially more successful than the men. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I understand when, you, when you've got a target on your back, then there, there comes something. Germany beat Estonia the day after 8-0. 8-0 right. in World Cup qualifying. Goals 2 through 8, they didn't celebrate. Why is that? That's a World Cup qualifier. I know it's not the pinnacle. It's still a World Cup qualifier for some of those guys, Richard, that will never play in a World Cup and they didn't celebrate because, one, they're expected to beat Estonia. And that's all I'm saying. The United Vegas had the spread at kickoff at minus five and a half. And at one point got to six and a half and seven, Richard. So the whole world knew that Thailand in the United States was a mismatch. I, but, but again, it, what bothers me, Richard, to put a bow on this is I have a comment. I'm analyzing the women. Immediately I'm considered to be a sexist. And that's why I'm like, wait a minute. I'm analyzing the women as if I would the men. And then people go, well, you don't. Well, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Germany, Brazil, I immediately, with Steve McManaman, and Ian Dark, and other guys in studio, were literally having a conversation. Well, holy, they were almost embarrassed. We talked about it. We had the conversation about humiliating Brazil and Brazil, and then people go back and say, well, you don't do this about men. It's like, well, do you, 
can I analyze the women or am I not allowed to do that unless I've got pom-poms out and I'm cheerleading? That's the fine line that really, it gets old sometimes because I respect the women more than anyone. It's a tough one. So, Taylor, we'll finish with this. You know who's really celebrating? David Neal and Alexi Lalas are doing what Rapino <laughs> did. I know Alexi Be- is. He's, he keeps texting me, although I, I won him over with uh, – I'm one up in him because I had game seven in his Red Wings. I don't think they even made the playoffs. They did not, yeah. But that, that in the end, with all this oh, debate, Matt. Fox is the, Fox is the winner. Yeah, yep. Fox is the winner because now you are going to get – Casual sports fans, well beyond any kind of hardcore soccer fans who are going to check out the next couple of games because they have read, I want to watch this team that scored all these goals and did all these celebrations. So, Which is it, awesome. This Good was a them. gift and a half to Fox in what probably should have just been some routine 9 nothing win over yeah. Thailand and let's move on to the next game. It's crazy. An absolute, an absolute gift. All right, are we, I'm going to let you go, Taylor, but not before I read your bio again. Taylor Uh-oh. Twelman is the lead soccer analyst at ESPN. He joined that organization in November of 2011. So, wow, he has been there for basically almost eight years. Following his uh, successful soccer career uh, in MLS, he's called World Cups, as I mentioned, national team matches. You can see him on Get Up, ESPN Radio, Van Pelt Show, and um, and he'll be doing. My sense is that his sort of uh, his reach at ESPN will expand. Listen, Taylor, it's always it's good to catch up with you. Um, and I appreciate you doing this. Uh, uh, I really this enjoy. Awesome, Richard. I'll send you a check for the uh, for the uh, long distance over Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy your thoughts always, and uh, and I wish you nothing in all seriousness but uh, continued success. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. That was awesome. See you, buddy. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Taylor Twelman. My thanks to uh, Chris Flannery. If you like these uh, kind of conversations, last couple weeks, uh, James Andrew Miller on ESPN, Jen Hildreth, who is calling the World Cup for Fox. Prior to that, David Epstein, now the best-selling New York Times author. Uh, Daniel Dow and uh, Sirit Sohi on uh, covering the Raptors. Before that, we had Taylor Rooks of Bleacher Report and Jim Ross, J.R., now of AEW, formerly of WWE. Go into the archives and uh, please check out the stuff. If you like this, please leave us a good review and a good rating. That is how this uh, stays on the air. And uh, Cadence 13 continues uh, my very small podcast amid their giant Spencer Brown, Chris Corcoran empire. All right. For Chris Flannery, for myself, we'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.